Welcome to the Leaders in Payments podcast, where we talk to C-level leaders from across the payments landscape. We'll be discussing the products and services that impact the payment space today, as well as trends and predictions for the future of payments. We will also hear stories from our guests about their journeys to the top. We don't live in the world like I grew up. Greg, I actually have a pension plan for my days at Bank of America. We don't have those anymore. And the concept of loyalty to companies has changed a great deal. So we need to focus on ourselves and what's good for our career. And so my advice to younger people is to learn what's out here in the world, travel, go to different countries and do different things in the field of their choice. And if it's payments, there's an explosion of activity right now. And so it's a great time to enter our industry. That was industry icon O.B. Rawls, and he is my special guest on this episode, episode 250 of the Leaders in Payments podcast, and I'm your host, Greg Myers. When I launched this podcast three and a half years ago, I never thought I'd do 250 episodes. And as I approached this milestone, I wanted to have on a special guest, someone that was an industry great and a great storyteller. So I'm honored to have OB on the show with me for this milestone episode. Of course, we talk payments, but we also talk about wine bourbon, and gardening. And at the end, OB provides some simple but sage advice. Be nice, be helpful, and be a good person. We've got a fascinating episode ahead, and it's one of my favorite people in payments. So let's get started. Hi, OB. Thank you for being here, and welcome to the Leaders in Payments podcast. Hey, Greg. It's nice to be here. Thanks for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. So, you were on the show back in April of 2020, so a little over three years ago, and at that time, you were the CEO of Global Payments Processing for PaySafe, and now, per a recent announcement, you're a partner at Wellesley Hills Financial, so we're going to talk about that a little bit during the show, but first, I want you to tell our audience a little about yourself, but I did want to mention a direct quote. So from our last show, these were your direct words. We always used to joke that we had possums for yard dogs. Growing up, we were so poor. So why don't we start there? Let's talk about you growing up on the farm in North Carolina. Maybe tell us about yourself. Tell us why you left the farm and let's start the interview there. Okay. That is a real quote. I've been accused of saying that a few times. But yes, I did grow up on a farm in eastern North Carolina in a town called Washington, just 90 miles east of Raleigh on the coast of North Carolina. We were poor. We owned land as farmers, but all of our livelihood came from the land. So if we had good years, we lived well. If we had bad years, we survived. And my parents did a really good job for my sister and I, Greg, in not letting us feel poor along the way. I only realized that as I had time to look back on life and reflect. But the farm was not where I was destined to be. I liked living in a small town, but I wanted to do something different. And so I had an opportunity to go to work with Bank of America, and I did that. And I did a lot of different things in 18 years at the bank that were fun. And I got to travel. I got to grow. We were a very acquisitive bank. And during that time, I moved a lot. And I lived in 18 years at the bank. I lived in seven different cities. And when someone said, we've got this job offer for you 
in this city doing this? I said, okay. And my last job there was in payments. The bank had had acquired a lot of different other banks and the payment companies, and I was asked to kind of run the, the consolidation of the different acquiring businesses, and I did that. And then later on, we had a real estate crisis in the Southeast, and the bank was looking to raise funds to support the capital levels of the bank. And so we created an idea to sell off the merchant services team or to sell 50% of it. And then we created a joint venture with Fiserv called United Merchant Services, and we were the third largest acquirer in the U.S. at that time. So from there, I went to the U.K. and built the Lloyds Bank joint venture for Fiserv, first general manager. And I came back to the U.S., left Fiserv, went to Hypercom, where I worked for seven years and ran global sales and operations for Hypercomp. We sold the company to Verifone, and I returned to Fiserv. I ran the hardware business at Fiserv, and then a lot of, of different services. And that's where you and I met when um, Frank Bizignano came in to be the CEO of the bank. And my last job there was running the third-party distribution business. Yep, that's where we met. I was running the partnership marketing team, and obviously the ISO channel that was under you was part of my responsibility. So that's kind of where we met. I want to fill in some gaps there. So before Bank of America, when you left the farm and before Bank of America, was there a few stops, other career things that you did there? Yeah, there was one stop before that. And I should have told that part of the story. But I worked for the state of North Carolina as a parole officer when I got out of college. And that was a lot of fun. I used to tell people I'd been handcuffed to felons in every uh, every country, but at least on every continent in the world. I did extradition while I worked for the state. So I would travel to different states and different countries and testify in court and get handcuffed to a felon and bring them back to Raleigh, North Carolina. It was a fun job. Yeah, it sounds like it. <laughs> how I got into banking, it's always amazed me how I made that transition. You want to tell us how you did it? Uh, yes. I was looking for something different. I enjoyed working for the state, but initiative wasn't particularly rewarded during that time. And I always thought that there were things in the world that I could learn how to do better and to see. And a friend of mine was working at the bank, and he said, we've got an opening over here. You you ought to come over here and help us. And so my first job at the bank was collections. I was actually repossessing cars and mobile homes and boats um, if I couldn't collect the money. So that was my first experience at the bank. And from there, I got into branch management, city management, broader and deeper lending functions at the bank and eventually into the credit card world. Okay. And as they say, the rest is history, right? Yes, sir. I'm 72 years old today, and there's a lot of history in the rearview mirror. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I'm glad you kind of brought us through that journey, and I think that'll resonate with a lot of people. I mean, obviously, you're a a well-known icon in our industry, and you're doing some new and different things these days. So let's talk about one of them. And there was a recent announcement I'm sure most people saw that you're now a partner at the Wellesley Hills Financial Group. So tell us what the company does. Wellesley is a boutique investment bank. 
Uh, it was founded by a gentleman named Adam Hark a few years ago as he split away from his partner and they each developed their separate companies. It's based just outside of Boston and it's a small firm focusing in the fintech world. I met Adam through some business deals and some relationships that we shared and we started talking and we both share a vision about how we can help our industry, help companies in the uh, payment space. Wesley Hills is a a fully licensed broker-dealer investment bank. We have a full range of services. We help financial entities buy companies. We help financial entities sell companies. We provide valuations of firms. We do quality of earnings statements. And we also have the capabilities to raise debt in the capital markets, help issue bonds for the funding of companies. We're a fully licensed company. In fact, we own Wesley Hills Securities as a subsidiary of Wesley Hills Financial. Our investment focus, Greg, was really simple. We want to help businesses in the 30 to $80 million deal size. So the smaller businesses in our industry that can't be served by Wall Street because of their size. And so we really believe this is a neglected market in the payments space. And we're going after three segments. We'll address first helping the participants in the industry, banks, ISOs, and financial organizations with the buying and selling of their firms. Our second focus will be on the technology-enabled fintech space, which is a lot of fun right now as we're watching the verticalization of our industry and companies being built on really highly singularly focused service software and other sales to industries like dry cleaners or automobile dealers. And our third focus will be in the SaaS-enabled software space as it relates to financial technology and fintech firms. Okay. And what would you say differentiates you guys from your competitors out there? People that know me will understand this. We're not Wall Street bankers. I really think we're Main Street bankers, and we identify well with the space and the targets that we've identified for our client base and for our growth. This is a fun time in the industry we're in today, and a lot of people are business owners are growing their businesses rapidly right now, and they're creating firms that have value and they're creating wealth. But in the segment we're focusing, it's very underserved. And we think we can add value and help the owners of these businesses in the range that we're talking about of 30 to $80 million for financings and sales and purchases. Okay. And I'm sure, I mean, obviously, you're very well connected and have a lot of irons in the fire, so to speak, and I'm sure had a lot of options of of kind of what was next. So why did you choose Wellesley Hills Financial? You know, I never thought I would own part of an investment bank growing up, but I really like the space and I like the idea of helping friends and businesses in the fintech and payment space creating wealth. It's possible now and helping guide these entities to successful transactions feels really good to me. And I believe that it's something the firm is very good at this level. We aren't well known in the industry, 
but we provide good service and we've done some significant transactions. We're building a valuable pipeline right now. And hopefully for ourselves, we're creating value and creating uh, possible uh, generational wealth. Okay. Well, let's turn and talk about payments. Where do you think the industry's headed, say, in the next three to five years? I mentioned it in the last statement, but we're seeing extremely highly focused vertical entities developing in the market space. And the industry is turning and is being driven around um, software services. Let me think about ERPs or operating systems that help dry cleaners run their businesses better. Golf course management is a vertical that's being created right now. Automobile repair shop softwares that help the owners run their businesses, pay their bills, schedule their clients. And in all of these verticals, payment is becoming invisible, Greg. It sets inside these verticals as just another module in here. And it's changing the way that the industry is selling. I think the way we used to be and the way I learned merchant services by knocking on doors and offering services to people is is endangered right now. I don't think it'll go away anytime soon. But I believe if the businesses that are selling today in a general environment to shopping centers and retail stores and knocking on doors are going to be challenged because as business owners change, as younger people come into the marketplace that are more comfortable with automation and management systems to run their businesses the way we currently sell in ISOs and even through large entities and banks is going to go away. So what do you think is the next kind of logical step? So like, obviously, this whole industry was built on selling payments, but from what you're saying and where the trends are headed, there's other products, like there's lending and issuing and all those. Is there anything that jumps out at you as like, hey, insurance is the next big thing or lending or or do you feel like it's whatever services that specific vertical needs? You see, I think there's a lot of value in helping small businesses stay in business longer. We both know small businesses really well. They're situational buyers. You can't walk into a small business and offer them a package of products that offer insurance, banking services, payroll, acquiring card acceptance, all of that in one package. Small businesses don't buy that way. But you can offer these services in situations by creating awareness and helping merchants understand that you have a payroll offering or you have a banking as a service offerings. And we're seeing these services being created in the marketplace today. I'll give you the classic example of Square. They're a financial services company. They're not a merchant acquirer. And they're offering a range of services to small businesses from acquiring hardware, lending, depository services. They're helping the smaller businesses with the tools they need to run their businesses better. There's a gentleman in Miami, Vlad Sadowski, that is adding banking as a service solutions to his payments. He's offering bank accounts, payouts, card issuance, and other banking services to small businesses, which is really refreshing to me. I think that the real change we have to make in our industry 
is learning how to sell differently and to sell better services and protect the grounds that we have by morphing into different types of sales organizations. Yeah. And you sort of mentioned this, but you and I have heard everyone in the industry has heard the death of the ISO. That phrase has been around for a while. So, I mean, any thoughts on the ISO specific and is the death of the ISO coming? And if so, when is it coming? You know, it won't be tomorrow, but I believe that if the organizations don't change selling practices, if they don't change their product offerings to include different business services, that there are a lot of ISOs that are dead men walking. And I hate to say that in this space, but directed selling, digital selling is beginning to take hold. And you can buy about anything you want to off of your phone today in the payment space. And the new generation of merchants will do things differently. And and our industry has to understand that and change the way we sell and change the products that we offer. Pricing's a commodity now. It's the service is the differentiator and the offerings that the solutions that we put in front of merchants have to change in order for us to survive. And I believe that a lot of our ISO friends and partners are very capable of changing their business models, but it's going to require work and a different mindset to get there. Yeah, yeah. Well, we kind of skipped over this. We talked about maybe these type of short-term changes. Are there any any bigger macro things that are like in your mind 10 years from now, how things might be? I mean, any any bigger picture macro things happening that you think might affect our industry? Some of this may be a little controversial, but I believe there will be small processors uh, created. I think we'll see companies that look, act, and feel like global payments and FISERVE and FIS that will be developed to acquire in niches. I know a company out of Scottsdale that has and is building a direct processing relationship with Visa, and they also will use Visa to process payments and on the back end, and then they will settle through a banking relationship. So, that type of new age processor will focus on particular niches. This one's going to go after the telecom market in Mexico, as an example. And there are other of these smaller entities being developed right now and actively supported by the card brands. So I think that if we don't focus on change and we aren't able to see around corners, that we're hurting ourselves. You know, Square came in and, and took food off of our tables, right? We owned this industry and we had a right to win. And we didn't see them coming and we didn't see what they were putting together as a business solutions and a financial services company to solve the needs and provide offerings to small businesses. Okay, well, let's switch gears a little bit and end our conversation talking a little bit more about you. And so the last time we talked, one of your major hobbies was collecting wine. So are you still passionate about collecting wine? I am. And it's making me smile as we talk about it. But I've got too much wine. My wife told me (laughs) to stop buying wine. And I did. So now I'm collecting bourbon. And Learning oh, all about okay. the bourbon world. It's, it's my new hobby and new passion. And it's really fun 
discovering the collectability of uh, brown water. Huh, interesting. And also, I learned recently that you've taken up gardening, so that's another new passion. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's been a lot of fun. It's so rewarding, Greg, when you can, like last night, I'd been traveling, and I came home, and so we were, what's for dinner? So I went out into in the garden. I got some fresh tomatoes. I got some fresh okra. I cut some broccolini and brought that in the house and cooked it for part of our dinner. And it's just fun for me watching things grow. And it's also better for you. The crops, the food's better, fresher, and it's a fun passion. So wine, bourbon, and gardening, are those the top three? Yeah. <laughs> Sounds kind of odd, doesn't it? Well, healthy food from the garden, just don't drink too much of the bourbon, right? Yeah. You have to sip the bourbon. Most of the bottles are unopened. It's just just building a collection. It's fun. It's just something different to learn. Great. Yeah. And you're in an area there where there's a lot, you're close to Tennessee and Kentucky. I think there's a lot of, a lot of history there with bourbon, isn't there? Well, there really is. And I'm just a novice now. I've just got so much more to, to learn about it. I'm, I'm planning to take a trip with my son Bonner. We want to tour the bourbon trail and just explore that. Yeah. Sounds like fun. Well, I think that I would be remiss if, if I didn't ask you about mentorship. Obviously, you have mentored many people throughout your career in payments and obviously well-known throughout the industry for relationships and building relationships. So the question is really, if you are asked to mentor someone that's just starting in payments, so they're maybe they're coming out of college, just starting very early on, and they come to you and they say, OB, I want to build my career in payments and fintech. That's what I'm passionate about. What would you tell them they need to do to be successful? That's a good question. I think, first of all, I would tell them to be inquisitive, to learn as much as they can about our industry, not to fall into the trap of learning only one skill. They should put a lot of tools in their toolbox, experiment. If you're working for a big company, Try different jobs in different organizations. Take some risk in your career. Change organizations. Grow with the tide in the marketplace. And to be experimental and to be bold in their choices. We don't live in a world like I grew up. Greg, I actually have a pension plan for my days at Bank of America. We don't have those anymore. And the concept of Loyalty to companies has changed a great deal. So we need to focus on ourselves and what's good for our career. And so my advice to younger people is to learn what's out here in the world, travel, go to different countries and do different things in the field of their choice. And if it's payments, there's an explosion of activity right now. And so it's a great time to enter our industry. Yeah, I agree with you there. I think it is a great time to be in payments. So, Obi, we've covered a lot of ground so far. Is there anything else you'd like to cover before we wrap up? Well, yes. I think that the other bit of advice that I would give young people entering the workforce or the payments workforce today is good general advice about being credible. Do what you say you're going to do. Earn respect of your clients and your coworkers and your peers 
Educate yourself. Don't wait for your company to do it. Learn how to project the future, how to look around corners and stay very focused on your career. But at the same time, Greg, be nice, be helpful in your relationships with others. And there's a lot of room out here to help people. So being helpful in a skillful way is one of the best traits someone can develop. And it applies across any job. It also reminds me of a saying one time that I heard a manager say about one of their employees, which is they're really good at what they do. But in addition to that, she's a really good person. And so that's stuck with me all of the years. So be a good person as you grow up in the business world. Yeah, I think that's some great advice. Well, OB, I know your time's very valuable, so I want to respect that. Thank you so much for being on the show today. It was great to have you back on after all these years. Interesting to hear about the new stuff that you're working on and doing. So again, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me, Greg. I really appreciate it. Have a nice weekend. You too. And to all you listeners out there, I thank you for your time as well. And until the next story. Thank you for joining us this week on the Leaders in Payments podcast. Make sure you visit our website at leadersinpayments.com, where you can subscribe to the show and where you'll find our show notes. If you enjoyed listening, please share on your social channels as well.